Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligent Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. In today's episode, we're bringing you words that change the world, a celebration of the power of oratory. With journalist and broadcaster Emily Maitlis as host, we were joined by Barack Obama's director of speechwriting, Cody Keenan, and Tony Blair's former speechwriter, Philip Collins, to discuss the power of the spoken word. They were joined by a few special guests. Yes, we were thrilled to have such a stellar cast of actors. We had Jeremy Irons, Kerry Mulligan, Simon Russell Beale, and Jade Nuka. This event took place on the 20th of November, 2017 in London. Tonight is a very special evening for us because we're celebrating our 15th birthday. And we're also celebrating almost 15 million downloads of our podcasts. Now, I wasn't at Intelligence Squared quite at the beginning, but I have been around for a very long time. And as you can imagine, I've seen some pretty amazing speakers on our stage. We've had Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Fry in our famous Catholic Church debate, Malala Yousafzai talking about overcoming adversity, Mary Beard socking it to Boris Johnson in Greece versus Rome. Fundamentally, what Intelligence Squared is about is the spoken word. And that's why tonight... We're staging this celebration of oratory and the power of words to persuade, to inspire, and to change people's minds. And we have an absolutely amazing cast of speechwriters and actors who you'll be hearing from in just a moment. Now, as you probably know, this event is a fundraiser for the Rugby Portobello Trust. They're a charity, and they've been doing amazing work helping the survivors of the Grenfell fire disaster. So now, please would you welcome our chair for the evening, Emily Maitlis, and our wonderful lineup of speakers and actors. Thank you very much. It is an absolute delight, ladies and gentlemen, to see you all here tonight. I'm glad you're here. You're in for a real treat. You've heard we're marking the 15th birthday of Intelligence Squared, and we're celebrating the spoken word. We look at the history of speeches and speech-making and the importance of words. I'll let that one sink in today, as if I even needed to. Now more than ever before, I think, we see the ramifications that a few lines can have as they spread around the world, for good or for bad. Tonight, it is a real privilege to bring you some of the very finest, read by the very finest. So I'm going to take you through our extraordinary cast list. We have uh, two highly distinguished speechwriters, experts in the art form, both sides at the Atlantic. Phil Collins will be uh, very familiar to many of you, chief speechwriter to Tony Blair, now a columnist in The Times, where he pioneered that analysis of major political speeches. And his new book is called When They Go Low, a reference to that line uh, you'll remember from Michelle Obama during the campaign speeches that shape the world and why we need them. That's going to be a fundamental question we ask tonight. Cody Keenan, a warm welcome to you, just flown over specially. Cody was President Obama's speechwriter during his eight years in the White House. He helped craft, amongst others, the State of the Union Address, the Selma 50th anniversary speech, which we'll be hearing a little of tonight, and the Farewell Address in Chicago. He's currently working with Barack Obama on his memoirs. Phil and Cody then will be discussing some of the great speeches made by remarkable men and women. They have chosen the ones that they found the most inspiring. But to bring it all to life, we have four 
of Britain's best-loved actors, Jeremy Irons, shot to fame early in the 1980s when he starred in the TV adaptation of Brideshead Revisited. He's barely left our screen or our stage since that moment. He won Best Actor Oscar for his uh, performance in Reversal of Fortune. Kerry Mulligan uh, won the BAFTA Best Actress Award for her breakout role in An Education. She starred alongside Meryl Streep more recently in Suffragette and took the lead role in Far From the Madding Crowd. Simon Russell Beale, one of the most acclaimed stage actors of his generation, hailed for his Lear, his Macbeth, his Hamlet, I can go on. You'll currently see him in Armando Iannucci's satire, The Death of Stalin, and he's the winner of two BAFTAs. Jada Nuka, star of the Donmar Warehouse's Shakespeare trilogy, Julius Caesar, Henry IV, The Tempest, an award-winning actor who's also appeared in Mike Lee's film, A Running Jump, and in the Channel 4 comedy, Chewing Gum. A warm welcome to all of you, and thank you for making this so special. But we're going to start right here uh, with you two, Phil and Cody, um, to understand what it is that pulls you into speech writing. Do you, do you wake up dreamy of being a speechwriter as a kid? No. <laughs> no, no, no I, neither do I. Yeah, I didn't even get into <laughs> politics to be a speechwriter. I got into politics because it's, at its most pure, it's a battle of ideas, and, and I felt passionately about a bunch of ideas. And my first boss was Ted Kennedy, uh, Senator John F. Kennedy's brother. Worked for him for a few years just as a policy aide. Uh, I actually started as an unpaid intern in the mailroom, and the Obama campaign came calling in 2007. They heard I could write, and, and I lied and told them I could, and this is my first speechwriting job. So what does that mean, then? When you say you can write, what had they seen of yours at that stage? Was it phrases? Was it the way you carried a message? What, what, what do you put into it? That... I'd written a few speeches for Senator Kennedy, not many, because he didn't have a dedicated speechwriter, but um, I always try to make them talk about something bigger than the actual moment, the actual issue, and I think that caught on. Phil? Well, for me, I came at it through the writing. I'd always wanted to be a writer. And uh, so the first thing was, was, was Dickens and Orwell, and they, they were the people I wanted to write like. And then I realized that speech writing is the point where writing and theater and politics all meet. And trying to find elevated words for political argument became the thing that I could do slightly better than all my colleagues in politics could do. They could do many other things better than I could, but I had spent a lifetime wasting my, my life just reading books that weren't on the curriculum. And suddenly that, I discovered that turns out to be the best possible apprenticeship to be a speechwriter. Don't do anything you're meant to be doing. Simply read all the wrong books and you discover years later that the, that music turns up in your writing. And we have uh, brought in actors tonight to deliver those speeches. Do you think your job is to make politicians into actors? I mean, when you talk about that performance, it is an art, isn't it? It is an art, and you, you, I've seen it done very badly. Uh, and it's very instructive when you've seen it done very badly. I used to write for uh, a, a certain deputy prime minister who I shall only identify by calling him John. <laughs> and... And th this John, I remember on a famous occasion, he, he was always rambling in his speeches. And I, I gave him a, a, a tip. I said, what you need to do, John, is tell the audience how many points you've got to make before you start. He said, well, thank you. That's very good advice. And he stood up before a very large audience just around the corner. He said, good morning, everybody. I have 49 points to make. <laughs> <laughs> who is the worst person you've written for, Cody? We, we've got no state secrets here. We all know who Phil's talking about. <laughs> Little reference to John Prescott there. Do you have a... Um... <laughs> 
I can't was I wrong? I can't believe you've blown my cover. I'm just, I'm just bringing all our American <laughs> friends in, into the conversation in case. Um, Cody, was there somebody that you found monstrous to write for? No, I've been extremely fortunate. Uh, <laughs> and that's actually true. I, you know, when you'd write for Ted Kennedy, though, he would view it as more of a... Barely even a map, just something that was there, and he'd do whatever he wanted to anyway. He was right. a force of nature. I mean, many people remember, for example, the Ed Miliband speech, which he learned off by heart and missed out that middle bit, didn't he? You know, the bit on immigration. Do you ever have those moments? Are you, are you sort of tracing the, you know, the lines as you go, and you find that somebody's decided to perform it, do it off by heart, and before you know it, it's... Oh, yeah, yeah. You've forgotten the, your best line. You, you stand there at the back with the script and you're going through it hoping that they hit all the right moments and don't, don't delete things. But obviously when you're talking about people of the calibre of Ted Kennedy and, and Tony Blair, they're perfectly capable of, of doing that. And they, it's part of the skill is to be able to go off script and not make a mess. And they did it all the time. I mean, Blair was constantly going off script and it was, he always landed it perfectly. But it's always a heart-rending moment because you think, oh, where's he going with mm. this? Mm. You know, you think, please don't make the news. No, don't say, don't say anything interesting, you find yourself thinking. <laughs> and we think of Obama in that same way as being so lyrical and so flowing. Did he stick to script or did he... He know? did, and that's, that's less a compliment to me than it is to him in that he was very active in his speech writing. He was very passionate about it. He was precise with his edits and the words that he chose so that by the time we went up to give a speech, it's exactly what he wanted to say. So more often than not, he'd stick to it because he'd already worked it through. We're going to take ourselves into the first speech now. This is um, the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln. Something that I had always thought was a sort of um, a first attempt. I thought it was this wonderful free-flowing thing. But you've explained, Phil, that there are sort of different iterations of this before he actually landed on the Gettysburg version. Oh, there are. There's always been a myth that it was just written on the back of an envelope on the mm. way to Gettysburg from Washington. And like most political speeches, the Gettysburg Address was written with quite a tight deadline, so you, don't, you can't have long. But there are five versions which are extant, and there's a number uh, there in the Library of Congress. There's, there's one version. And there was a controversy recently when Barack Obama recorded the Gettysburg Address, and he didn't say the words under God, which are the only things that Lincoln extemporized in the speech we're about to hear. And the religious rights were absolutely up in arms that Barack Obama had deleted the, the phrase under God. He hadn't, of course. All he'd done was to read out one of the original scripts that, that Lincoln had prepared. And he'd, and he'd put it in under the, uh, whilst he was there. The rest of it was delivered exactly as was written. And it is, I think, one of perhaps the greatest of all speeches because what it does is it captures in, in a single phrase, which you'll hear at the end of the, of the speech, the maxim of popular sovereignty down the ages. You, you hear Cicero in Lincoln because you get this unbroken link from the American Republic uh, all the way back to the Roman Republic. For Cicero, rhetoric was not just speaking, it was also politics. The two things were the same. And that idea of popular sovereignty is given absolutely imperishable form by Lincoln. There's one last thing of context before we hear it, which is that Lincoln was not meant to deliver the Gettysburg Address. That honour went to a man called Edward Everett, who was a renowned orator of the day. And Everett spoke for two and a half hours. An incredible flourish. Absolutely dreadful. We don't remember a word of it. It's all there, publishable if you want to read it, but it's terrible. It's really incredibly ornate. And Lincoln's plain style reinvents rhetoric on the day. 
at the time, people thought this was far too prosaic, but it's become the great standard of American rhetoric. This is Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives, that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. And it is that wonderful line, isn't it? Uh, the world will little note, nor long remember what we say here. And of course, that speech, as Phil said, probably one of the most memorable in the world, uh, against which we now set virtually every other presidential speech. No politician has given as good a speech since. No politician has delivered a speech that's 272 words since. Uh, <laughs> And what's extraordinary about it beyond its, beyond its brevity and simplicity is it does what any great speech does, which is it speaks to something bigger than the moment. They were there to consecrate a battlefield as a cemetery, but instead he talked about not just winning a war that was still raging and still very much in doubt, but our very founding ideals, the very possibility about whether or not a country founded on those ideals could endure. And of course, Lincoln would not have had a speechwriter. 
Phil? Or... Well, well, he had a clerk. In those days, they didn't use the term speechwriter, but there's a man called John Nicolay, who was his clerk, who helped him with the speech, but he, he did write it himself. So they, they worked on it together. Um, but you see in the speech, too, the echoes of previous rhetoric. So there's Pericles is in this speech. The rhetoric really begins with Pericles in 431 BC in his commemoration of the war dead of the, for the Peloponnesian War. And what Pericles does is exactly what Lincoln does there, was he passes from the eulogy to the war dead quite quickly and, tr- and transports it into a paean of praise to the democracy, to the city, to the, to the republic. And, and th- that transition marks all of rhetoric. And it's the start of rhetoric and democracy, who are, which are twinned. Because it's only in a democracy that the words really matter, because it's only in a democracy where you're trying to persuade. Well, the act of persuasion is also the act of politics, as Cicero says. And that's what Lincoln's doing there. And so brief, uh, as you said, Cody, so brief. It must have taken ages to write. You don't get that kind of brevity without losing a lot along the way. No, a shorter speech is is much harder to write. Mm -hmm. Anybody can write a long speech. A short speech takes takes a lot longer time. Just one point about the very first words, too. Four score years and seven. Now... That sounds just like the date in a cadence, but it's much more than that. If you work back from 1863, four score years and seven, it takes you back to the Declaration of Independence, not to the writing of the Constitution. That's absolutely critical, because what Lincoln is saying in this speech is that the Civil War is a betrayal of the independence. The revolution has been betrayed. And what he's talking about, without ever mentioning the word, is slavery. He has himself proposed the Emancipation Proclamation. And this speech is about slavery. And he's saying these dead will have died in vain and if this republic is allowed to continue with the blood of slaves. And that's what he's saying. But because his audience will not receive that well, he's saying it in coded language. So it's very cleverly done. It's poetic, but it's incredibly brutal at the same time, once you understand. And Cody's right. This has become the absolute speech that no one has ever surpassed. But every American president goes to Gettysburg and does their own Gettysburg address. There's only one president who didn't make it there, and that was Kennedy, because in 1963, he was due to do the centennial uh, speech, and he had to ask Eisenhower, who lived on a farm in Gettysburg, to stand in for him, because Kennedy had to go down to Dallas, where he did some important party political work and never came back. And then every president does the same speech at Gettysburg, which is a sort of cover version of Lincoln. And then in the last election campaign, candidate Trump went to Gettysburg, and instead of 272 words of compressed beauty, he delivered 45 minutes of egregious tirade about the corruption of the American Republic. It it was and is the worst and most disgraceful speech I've ever seen, because to do that anywhere would would be pretty bad. But to go to the place which is essentially a sort of secular right and deliver that speech was really a, quite an astonishing um, abnegation of everything that the American Republic stands for. Um, talking of rites of passage, places that have come to represent that, um, I'm going to let you take us on, Cody, to Barack Obama's Selma speech on the anniversary. Um, you won't say this, but I can. You had a very major part in what he said there. I helped him, yeah, write it. I mean, he's, this, I always say it, but it's true. Barack Obama was our chief speechwriter. Everything flowed from him, and we were just there to help. But for Selma, this was another speech about the meaning of America, just like Gettysburg. It was, you know, in, in, in March 7th, um, uh, 1965, I guess, or six, yeah, um, a group of mostly black Americans set out to march to protest for their right to vote. 
And before they even crossed the bridge out of town, their nonviolent protest was met with violent retribution. And the image of bloodied women, bloodied men, children, fire hoses, attack dogs, they, they actually reached the entire world and they shook the conscience of the nation and the president. And it was sanctioned, wasn't it? That was the, it was the sanctioned. violence sanctioned by the mayor, sanctioned by the governor. And sanctioned. on the bridge, which I think is to this day still named after a Ku Klux Klan. Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And the idea that just 50 years later a black president would come back to that site was crazy enough. As John Lewis actually said when he introduced Barack Obama that day, I would have called you crazy. But, and we could have just done a nice ceremonial speech to commemorate it and gotten out of there, but Barack Obama wanted to do something a little bit bigger with it. He wanted to talk about the meaning of America because even 241 years in, we're still engaged in a big battle over what we are, whether we're a static, nationalistic, fearful country divide by, defined by one particular race or creed, or whether we're ever-pressing, dynamic, ever-changing, and we view that as our constant hallmark. So he elevated Selma, the place, into the pantheon of great American places. But he also elevated those people into some of our most iconic Americans. What could be more American than what happened in this place? What could more profoundly vindicate the idea of America than plain and humble people, unsung, the downtrodden, the dreamers not of high station, not born to wealth or privilege, not of one religious tradition but many, coming together to shape their country's course. What greater expression of faith in the American experiment than this? What greater form of patriotism is there than the belief that America is not yet finished? That we are strong enough to be self-critical? That each successive generation can look upon our imperfections and decide that it is in our power to remake this nation to more closely align with our highest ideals. For we were born of change. We broke the old aristocracies, declaring ourselves entitled not by bloodline, but endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. We secure our rights and responsibilities through a system of self-government of and by and for the people. That's why we argue and fight with so much passion and conviction because we know our efforts matter. We know America is what we make of it. We're the immigrants who stowed away on ships to reach these shores, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, Holocaust survivors, Soviet defectors, the lost boys of Sudan, with the hopeful strivers who crossed the Rio Grande because we want our kids to know a better life. That's how we came to be. And that's what the young people here today and listening all across the country must take away from this day. You are America, unconstrained by habit and convention, unencumbered by what is, because you're ready to seize what ought to be. Because Selma shows us that America is not the project of any one person. Because the single most powerful word in our democracy is the word we. We the people. We shall overcome. Yes, we can. That word is owned by no one. It belongs to everyone. Oh, what a glorious task we are given to continually try to improve this great nation of ours. All those echoes of 
speeches that we know, the Gettysburg, of course, the um, Statue of Liberty, but then this phrase, which he has come to be so associated with, yes, we can, Cody. You can hear, uh, when Jade was reading, you know, I could, I could hear his voice again. There is a sort of liturgical resonance, isn't there, to how he speaks, what he says, and I wonder whether the words come from that or whether he sort of directs that. What, tell us about Yes, We Can. Both. I mean, and what's interesting about this speech is that he actually struck Yes, We Can that morning. That was the, that was the day. Yeah, and uh, I had to fight with him on the plane to try to put it back in, and he thought it was too self-referential as a direct reference to the campaign. And I had to remind him, you know, the very next lines where those words belong to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yes, We Can was, was it's, we knew that people there would cheer about this, and this was a speech specifically to the future two young Americans were engaged in this battle. And I said, you have to give them that rallying cry. So how self-effacing, I mean, how unusual, really, for a man of power um, to, to not want to put too much of himself in it? Yeah, it's a pretty solid contrast to what we see today. <laughs> I'm always struck with the American rhetoric about how self-consciously it's a tradition. So you've got that, you, you know, you've got Lincoln in there, you heard, but you've also got um, we the people, we shall overcome, yes we can. It's a tradition that they quote across party. And we, we, it's much harder to do that in Britain. I mean, it struck me before when I saw that Cody had chosen that speech, two things about it. One is that Obama's writing, and in your writing, is really quite plain. And the poetic elevation comes from compression. It's, it's like the creation of diamonds. And... In the Gettysburg Address, 204 of those 272 words were a single syllable. And Obama's writing's very much like that. There's no flourish as such. It comes from the arrangement, the setting, and it's beautifully done. The other thing I thought is that if I were to do the speech which I'm most known for, it was the 2006 conference speech when Cherie Blair had said something rude about Gordon Brown and we had to make light of it in a joke. And I found this old um, Les Dawson joke, which was... um, my wife's run off with the guy next door, and do you know what? I'm really going to miss him. <laughs> and it just struck me that you're well-known for an absolutely beautiful speech about an injustice, and I'm known for a Les Dawson gag. <laughs> I think that tells you something about the nature of the two countries. Um, do you think that, I mean, from what you're saying, if it's all down to one-syllable words, these speeches have to be said out loud. They don't work as well on the page? Some do, some don't. I mean, Demosthenes wrote that all great speeches should, uh, should read well, too, but I'm not sure that's true. I think there are some speeches which re- don't need to come to life. They need to be delivered well. And, you know, I, I have myself read some of these speeches and made a terrible mess of them. They don't, they don't come alive unless you've got the, the rhythm. I, I think, I mean, Obama's got a magnificent speaking voice, hasn't he? When, whenever we wrote, we always wrote for the year. And we'd right. read, read the speech aloud before even giving him a draft and, and try to, you know, it's like the first time you, uh, when you're trying to learn a foreign language and you dream in that foreign language. The first time I could hear his own voice was when I realized I finally had it. Right. Were you there with him when uh, he did the Pinckney speech, when he, he sang Amazing Grace? Because yeah. I've always wondered what, how the speech writing meeting went before that speech when he says, what I'm going to do is about 15 minutes in, I'm going to sing. I can tell you we, this, this was the eulogy after the shooting in Charleston, Charleston and, yeah. and we'd already done over a dozen of these 
and uh, we were trying to find it, figure out what to say this time. You know, that, that's different. And it was actually the families of the, of the victims forgave the killer in open court. And he said, that's it. I want to talk about grace, the concept of unearned grace. And <clears throat> I did my best, but the night before, he crossed out the final two pages, rewrote them longhand. Uh, I think Pete Sue's got a photo of it somewhere. And he, we'd, we'd worked with the concept of grace. He actually wrote in the lyrics the night before. And then when we were, he handed me back more revisions that morning. And we were on the helicopter getting off at Andrews to get onto Air Force One. He turned and said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And I just said, okay. <laughs> but people do ask if, if we wrote in, you know, sing here. And you, you can never do that. You have to feel it. But if you've ever seen the speech, you can tell instantly that, you know, he's in a black church. Of course he's going to sing. There's, there's an organist playing. There's a guy with a guitar. One of the preachers behind him is in shades. It's happening. So, he always knew then he would sing it. Yeah, I'd say 99.9%, yeah. Extraordinary. I'm going to take us on. I don't really want to leave Obama on that thought because it's so extraordinary, but I'm, I'm going to bring in Winston Churchill. Mm. You've picked the finest hour um, speech, Phil, which is... The finest Take hour. Into, yeah. yeah. Uh, I could have chosen any of the speeches from 1940. They're, they are all remarkable. What gives them their real gravity is the fact that the, the peril is real. That um, the you know, Luftwaffe have been in the sky. This speech we're about to hear um, is after the Battle of Britain. And it's genuinely a moment when the country is on the threshold of complete disaster and collapse. And that gives rhetoric great power because you can say things of weight at that moment. And Churchill is the perfect example of this, because he was renowned throughout his career for lavishing verbosity on issues that simply didn't warrant it. So you go back to 1899, and Churchill is a by-election candidate in Oldham. He's 24 years of age. And he turns up at Church Hall, and there's about six people there. And he stands up on the podium, and he says, Never before in the history of Oldham have so many people had so much to eat. And there's a sort of... And then nine years later, he's a junior minister and he's in Africa. And he goes to the opening of an irrigation scheme. And he's literally standing next to a hole in the ground. And he says, never before in the history of Africa have so much water been held up by so little masonry. <laughs> and it's... Is this true? It's all true. I'm not just making it up, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making speeches up. I mean, yeah, he, he did it all his life. He, he lavished his skill on things that simply weren't up to it. And then, but then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this absolutely extraordinary final chapter to this, this random career, and he's prime minister in the war, and then he hits the, the heights with never before in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. That's the speech which follows this one. This is their finest hour, where he's defining the war effort. He's giving a fairly candid assessment of where Britain is in the war. And then, at the end, he lifts everybody with this hope. What General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. 
The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Your thoughts on that, to, to, to us it sounds such a quintessentially British speech. It is, of course, a British speech in, in wartime. Does it feel that that could not be made by an American leader? Do you think it's a different type of language, a different type of rhetoric, or would you not go that far? Yes, and I think the, the moment's different too. I mean, I think the extinction of your way of life tends to be clarifying. <laughs> um, and we, we've never really had that moment. You know, we're protected by two oceans. And it's also the time. I, I, just watching Simon do that, I pictured people sitting around the radio yeah. listening. And it was also a time where everyone would listen to a speech like that, whether on television or the radio. Today, you just don't get that. You don't get those moments. They're so rare where tens of millions of Americans would tune in. It, it, and... A lot of them now just tune in as a chorus of critics on Twitter. It's, it's just a very, very different age. One of the reasons that we, Churchill is so revered as a speaker, and Lloyd George isn't, is that Churchill had the radio and Lloyd George didn't. Lloyd George was an absolutely excoriating speaker. He was brilliant. And his war speeches were absolutely fabulous in the First World War, but we don't have recordings of them. So he hasn't entered the collective memory in the way Churchill has. There's also, of course, the fact of the war, that the Second World War is a more obviously and easily assimilable just war than the Great War. But really it's because we don't have any recordings of Lloyd George. Because Churchill did do that to the radio. He, he delivered it first in the House of Commons. And then that evening he went to the BBC to record it. And he was, on the occasion of this one, he was in a terrible mood. And he turned up at the BBC and was moaning there was no whiskey. And so... In order to annoy them, he, re he refused to take his cigar out of his mouth. So the recording we've got, he sounds drunk. He's not drunk, he's just got a cigar in his mouth. So <laughs> it, we could have made you do it with a cigar in your mouth for authenticity. <laughs> we decided not to. <laughs> the cigar was, um, was quite a peril for Church, wasn't it? I mean, he often just sort of caught fire as he wrote, didn't he? <laughs> he, he literally did. There was one occasion when he was so lost in the composition of a speech that uh, his valet had to say, um, Sir, you appear to be on fire. Um, and he said, well, just put it out, man. <laughs> and is there, is there a sense that Churchill knew, or any of these leaders knew, um, the, the sort of success that they had achieved by the time they first delivered it? Or does that only come uh, sort of retrospectively? 
I think in Churchill's case, and, and usually you can, of course, judge your audience in the auditorium or in the House of Commons as it was in his case. You, you know immediately whether you're working there. You don't know whether your wider audience has received your words well at all. And that becomes more and more apparent as we have you know, mass media. And, of course, the primary audience for the speeches we wrote were invisible to us. Uh, we didn't know in what circumstances they would receive our words. We didn't know how many people would. We didn't know how it would be cut up. The, one of the things, I mean, you're trying to get onto Newsnight, and you think, well, you're going to be cut up into a very small segment. So that's why you spend quite a lot of time trying to work out your top line, your soundbite. You think, if I'm only going to get six seconds on the news, then I want it to be the right six seconds. You know, if Shakespeare was going to get six seconds, you'd think, well, I, w- I really hope they do the t- to be or not to be bit. <laughs> Because, you know, that's my best line, and I want that up there. And that will be on his press release. Which is, of course, why, why sometimes now with politicians, they will stick to a line, however long the interview, because they're so scared, if it's pre-recorded, that the line doesn't get that's through. That's right. They're, they're fearful of people like you having your own opinions. <laughs> God help us. I don't do that. I'm at the BBC. Um, <laughs> Um, Cody, I wonder if, if when you were writing, or uh, as you wrote um, for Barack Obama, you could ever sense a correlation between a successful speech and a jump in public opinion or in an ease with which a policy was accepted. Was there anything that tangible to work on? No, and I think that's, I mean, I wish that was the case, but I think that's also a consequence of the times. I mean, we were so polarized, there's just very little that any one speech is going to do, even to move a policy. Um, you think uh, how many times we had to write speeches on climate change, even wasting time trying to convince people that it's real. You know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't, I think that in Churchill's time that probably would have worked a lot well, better than that. Wouldn't now. you say of all politicians of the modern era, Obama is the one who really owes his assent to his rhetorical brilliance. Yes. All the way back from his first convention appearance when he really bursts on the scene. And, and then the, the campaign in, in his fight against Hillary Clinton. It's his capacity for language which really demonstrates, I think, why speeches still count. He is the, the absolute typical politician who is as good as they get. I mean, I yeah. regard him, I can say this more easily than you can, I think he's by a distance the best in, in my lifetime. When I was uh, on the US campaign trail over the last 18 months, um, talking to a lot of people about Hillary Clinton and rhetoric, and they said, you know, she's got the toughest job in the world because, you know, she's, she's through no fault her own sandwich between Barack Obama's rhetorical brilliance and, of course, the comparisons people made with Bill Clinton. And it was sort of almost unachievable. That rhetoric was not particularly her forte. Many things were, but that wasn't. Was that sort of... Do you, do you think that was ever part of the, of the, the failure of, of that campaign? I, know, I think she embraced that notion. I mean, she, she made light of it, certainly, but that's, the, her skill set lay in, lie, lay in uh, policy work and in bringing people together and doing the nitty-gritty, and that's what she was really great at. Bill Clinton's a good example of something very important about rhetoric because there's a, there's a very fine speaker and a, and a fine mind, but judged in retrospect, not a great deal to say. And the reason for that is not, not, is not to denigrate him. It's because the Times didn't produce mm. that kind of moment. He didn't have an event which goes down in the anthologies and the history books in the way that Ronald Reagan did, a series of Cold War speeches which are magnificent and still anthologized. Peace and and prosperity don't lend themselves to historical speeches. His inauguration speech is so forgettable, isn't it? It's sort of the least... 
the least interesting one of any I, recent... I think um, for the reason yeah. Cody gives, that you know, happiness writes white, as Montholant said. It's very difficult to write in, a, in an engaging and vivid way about things which are nice. I think there was, a, there was an opening there that would have been interesting after the end of the Cold War to redefine what the future is going to look like. Um, I actually, one of the most devastating lines that George W. Bush ever uttered, I thought, a great line in his convention speech in 2000 when he was talking about Bill Clinton was, in the end, to what end? Yeah. And I remember watching that on TV going, damn, that is cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to bring in um, the first female speech. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a plethora of reasons why there are so few um, women's speeches in history, but we have one. Um, before Kerry um, performs for us, I should just say, Kerry Mulligan's got to dash off at about 7.20, so I'm very conscious of, of trying to get as much um, with Kerry before you go to film, but... Um, Maybe, Phil, you could just take us briefly into this and then we'll let... Yeah, well, this is Elizabeth I. This is a speech uh, about gender because Elizabeth I is speaking to the troops that gathered um, at Tilbury. Uh, The Spanish Armada is is, um, about to, to launch its attack and Elizabeth is answering the accusation that as a woman she cannot be a viable commander of the armed forces. I am come amongst you, as you see, at this time not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. To which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns and we do assure you in the word of a prince they shall be duly paid you. In the meantime, my lieutenant general should be in my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject, not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. And this is the Queen as Commander-in-Chief, isn't it? A a woman who has to reassure subjects that she's actually a man, you know, that she can behave like a man. That's right, and she refers to her father uh, in the speech because she knows that if the battle goes awry, it will be attributed to her gender in a way it wouldn't have been if, the, if, it, if it was a king rather than a queen. So she, she does what you should always do, and she confronts that head-on, and she takes on that fight. And she was greeted with a great ovation. Um, and you say she didn't wear heels. Well, it's very interesting. I can't tell you definitely she did wear heels, but there is a, a huge scholarly dispute about what she was wearing at the time. Um, because the conception we have of Elizabeth now as this formidable warrior is really owed to that speech and all the... Um, all the depictions of her in various sort of suits of armour. And I don't want to labour the point, but there was a very strong moment during the um, 
last campaign where Hillary Clinton had to decide, didn't she? Was she going to say, you know, because a lot of criticism was, how can we have a woman, you know, I say criticism, a lot of her critics would say, how can we have a woman as commander-in-chief? This was something um, that the other side used against her. And she had to decide whether to you know, to sort of feminise herself, didn't she? Um, yeah, or whether to sort of take the Elizabeth I approach and say, I'm steely. Yeah, I know I look weak and feeble, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain unfairness to the, the, the bars she had to jump over and the hoops she had to jump through. I mean, nobody made Donald Trump prove whether or not he was capable to be commander-in-chief, you know? And it's I would a shame, have... really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> So she, and she didn't really have to work that hard at, at saying it either. She, she traveled to, I think, 108 countries when she was Secretary of State. She you know, lived in the White House for eight years with the Commander-in-Chief. She was, knew all the generals. I mean, she was eminently qualified. But to make her still have to go through these hoops saying, I know I'm but a weak and feeble woman, is ridiculous. Was Elizabeth completely transformed the way she was seen with this speech. I mean, again, it shows how important it was. We don't know for certain this speech was ever delivered, actually. All we have is the testimony of a clergyman 35 years later who wrote it up. So we, we can't be certain that it was delivered exactly as it was, but um, she did. She was known to be a, a real sort of fan of good writing, and Elizabeth was a good writer herself. We know that. So it, it accords with what we do know about her literary capacities, but we're not certain that those words were delivered quite like that. But we can compare it to the words of Emily Pankhurst, the laws that men have made, which she embraces the fact that women need laws for women. It's not about being male, it's about laws coming to meet women. Absolutely. I mean, Emily Pankhurst, in the speech we're about to hear, is um, she, she arrives actually from prison. Um, because she's been imprisoned by the authorities, as she was on seven occasions. And there's a gathering in the Portman Rooms in London, and they don't expect Emmeline Pankhurst to turn up. And she does. She comes on stage, and she, she's greeted with this huge ovation. And she does a really brilliantly forensic speech about why it's important for women to be, firstly, given the vote, but secondly, why? Because there are laws that men have made which are only for the interests of men. And this is the speech in which she makes that case. Men politicians are in the habit of talking to women as if there were no laws that affect women. The fact is, they say, the home is the place for women. Their interests are the rearing and training of children. These are the things that interest women. Politics have nothing to do with these things, and therefore politics do not concern women. Yet the laws decide how women are to live in marriage how their children are to be trained and educated, and what their future of their children is to be. All of that is decided by Act of Parliament. Let us take a few of these laws and see what there is to say about them from the women's point of view. First of all, let us take the marriage laws. They are made by men for women. Let us consider whether they are equal, whether they are just, whether they are wise. What security of maintenance has the married woman? Many a married woman, having given up her economic independence in order to marry, how is she compensated for that loss? What security does she get in that marriage for which she gave up economic independence? Take the case of a woman who has been earning a good income. She is told that she ought to give up her employment when she becomes a wife and a mother. What does she get in return? All that a married man is obliged to do by law for his wife is to provide her shelter of some kind food of some kind and clothing of some kind. It is left to his good pleasure to decide what the shelter shall be. 
what the food shall be, what the clothing shall be. It is left to him to decide what money shall be spent on the home and how it shall be spent. The wife has no voice legally in deciding any of these things. She has no legal claim upon any definite portion of his income. If he is a good man, a conscientious man, he does the right thing. If he is not, if he chooses almost to starve his wife, she has no remedy. What he thinks sufficient is what she has to be content with. The more one thinks about the importance of the vote for women, the more one realizes how vital it is. We're finding out new reasons for the vote. We need new needs for the vote every day in carrying on our agitation. I hope there may be a few men and women here who will go away determined to at least give this question more consideration than they have in the past. They will see that we women who are doing so much to get the vote want it because we realize how much good we can do with it when we've got it. We do not want it in order to boast of how much we have got. We do not want it because we want to imitate men or be like men. We want it because without it, we cannot do the work that is necessary and right and proper that every man and woman should be ready and willing to undertake in the interest of the community of which they form a part. Thank you. Um, Kerry, thank you so much. Kerry is... Kerry is leaving us for Graham Norton, um, but, but I'm understood that um, you, can, you can catch her tomorrow. Um, just hearing that and the, the sort of simplicity with which Kerry read that, I, I was sort of, I was struck, it's almost like she's trying to explain something incredibly simple to a child. You know, there's no soaring rhetoric. Or, there's or no, a man. Or a... You said... <laughs> there is no grandiose... There is no sort of soaring flight, is there? There's no. just, let me put this in words of literally one syllable. That's right. Her husband, Richard Pankhurst, was, was a lawyer, and that is essentially a, a sort of lawyer's speech. Uh, It's it's very instrumental, the argument she makes, too, because she doesn't dwell for long on the sheer injustice that women should be denied the vote. You could make that case. It's simply an irrelevant category, womanhood, to deny anybody the vote. And she does glance at that argument, but then she moves on quite quickly to say the reasons why the consequences of us not having the vote are themselves iniquitous. And she makes it in a very painstaking way. And it's very interesting. And part of the reason she does that, I think, is that, of course, Pankhurst and the suffragettes, in contrast to the suffragists, Millicent Fawcett suffragists, were renowned for their violent methods. So at least in part, this is a speech of someone who's just arrived from prison, whose the authorities are watching her very closely, and she makes a deliberately downbeat a consciously rational argument. So the context is quite important in, in that plainness of style. So you said something um, critical there, which is a rational quality would be something that presumably men would admire. And also men at the time, of course, would regard women as not capable of that. Right. So, so, so I'm the, not the, hysterical, I'm quite. not shouting, I'm not going to burst into tears. Quite. And, and interestingly, yeah. this, this line that she says we do not want it because we want to imitate men or be like men. She's anticipating, isn't she, their panic? Yes. She said that a lot in all her speeches, that sort of thing. She's also addressing women because at the time, I mean, bear in mind this is a century ago, 
not all of the women were on her side by any means. So she's also saying to women of a traditional cast of mind, don't worry, I'm not excluding you. She's doing something we all have to do with speeches, which is try and bind an audience which does not agree. So she's trying not to lose women of a traditional kind as well as win over uh, men. So it's a very delicate task she's engaged on, and that explains the very careful way she trips through the argument. Yeah, the simplicity is what makes it powerful. I mean, some of the best speeches throughout history are given by agitators and rabble-rousers, but that's just what we call them, and really all they're doing is holding up a mirror to society, and what we see is uncomfortable. And the simplicity of her just describing exactly how society works was uncomfortable. Like some of the, some of the greatest speeches in, in civil rights, women's rights, labor rights, embrace that. And, and the line you pointed out, she's, it's not even a plea for special treatment. It's just a plea for the equal treatment that we like to promise but don't always deliver on. Because you're telling people things they don't know. I mean, yes. whether it's civil rights, most people would not have known, you know, the situation um, that those fighting for justice were in. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they, we even do know and don't do anything about it. And that's what makes it even more uncomfortable. We're going to go to Shakespeare now. Mm. Henry V, um, the speech on St. Crispin's Day. Crispian? Crispin? Crispin. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes it has an A, sometimes it doesn't. Um, Phil, do you have a few yeah. words to take? We're really actually looking at two battle speeches now, aren't we? Um, one Shakespeare and one much more modern. Yeah, the, the other one's Tim Collins on the eve of the Iraq uh, battle. I mean, Shakespeare, there's an old uh, speechwriter's joke, um, which I've used many times, which is when anyone's written anything, you say, your words will be read long after Milton and Shakespeare are forgotten, but not until then. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm often asked, who's the best speechwriter in the history of, of rhetoric? And it's very hard to look past Shakespeare. You know, I am no orator as Brutus is. And then there's whole, whole sections of the, of the plays that are actually about rhetoric, not just deploying it. Coriolanus uh, being the obvious example. Julius Caesar just cited. And Shakespeare's magnificent capacity for rhetorical language is seen to wonderful effect in this passage we're going to hear in a moment from Henry V. And then we're going to have straight after that a modern version of eve of war speaking, Colonel Tim Collins speaking to his troops before they go into battle. In the defining conflict of the 21st century, the uh, battle battle in Iraq, uh, uh, the politics of which are much strolled over, but it's much more rare to just dwell for a moment and think about those people going into that battlefield and what is going through their minds. That's what Tim Collins is trying to do. But first, let's have... Henry V, Shakespeare. He which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. 
Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves a curse they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. We go to liberate, not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. We are entering Iraq to free a people. And the only flag which will be flown in that ancient land is their own. Show respect for them. Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, remember to be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood, and the birthplace of Abraham. Tread lightly there. You will see things that no man could pay to see. And you will have to go a long way to find a more decent, generous and upright people than the Iraqis. You will be embarrassed by their hospitality, even though they have nothing. Don't treat them as refugees, for they are in their own country. Their children will be poor, but in years to come they will know that the light of liberation in their lives was brought by you. If there are casualties of war, then remember that when they woke up and got dressed in the morning, they did not plan to die this day. Allow them dignity in death. Bury them properly and mark their graves. There are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. If you harm the regiment or its history by over-enthusiasm in killing or in cowardice, know it is your family who will suffer. You will be shunned unless your conduct is of the highest, for your deeds will follow you down through history. We will bring shame on neither our uniform 
or our nation. If we survive the first strike, we will survive the attack. As for ourselves, let's bring everyone home and leave Iraq a better place for us having been there. Our business now is north. I'd forgotten the astonishing power of that. I don't think um, I had heard it spoken out loud. I remember vividly when it was made, it was on the front page of our newspapers. And going back to what you were saying about Churchill and the radio, that for me was a reminder that this was a message not just to the troops, but very much to an audience, a domestic audience, wasn't it, yes. of, of doubters yes. of there had been protests, the Iraq war, and there were a lot of people who really worried about our position there. Yeah, and, and how the outcome can mock the rhetoric in due course. Because the other thing that's really powerful about it is the, the fact that we didn't tread lightly uh, and that none of those things came to pass. And it's, and it's, it's now sounds like a series of pious hopes which we know will be disappointed and that happens in rhetoric all the time speeches don't make things happen most of the time the the most conspicuous example was right back at the beginning was Cicero his series of Philippics against Mark Antony he ended up with his head cut off and his his hand cut off uh, and nailed to the rostrum to exhibit us to pass us by and if you end up with after a series of speeches with your head and your hands cut off you have to conclude it could have gone better (laughs) that's um, Cody, such a sort of sobering thought. I mean, not, not that one, obviously, which is. Um, but this idea that we've called this, this session, this, this performance tonight, words that change the world. What if they don't? Yeah, I was going to make the same point. You know, the, the Churchill speech doesn't really endure if Britain fell, if we lost the Battle of Britain. Uh, and that's how history is written, you know. There are a lot of great speeches out there that didn't endure because it didn't work out the right way. Yeah. So, so your um, perspective then will be this is not a speech that, that lasts because, or do, or do you, you know, I mean, Tony Blair, as you know well, thinks we will come full circle. I don't want to enter a, a sort of an Iraq war debate, but he <laughs> thinks that we will come full circle and recognise that it was the right battle to wage. Do you think in, you know this could be a speech that, if you like, comes back into fashion. I think Cody's exactly right, and I think it's a very important point, that the, the speeches which really last over a long period are those which tell the story of progress and a victory. And all the great speeches, if you look at them collectively, they are speeches that are made at a moment of great importance where the, some sort of injustice was named and something else happened that was better on the other side. And those are the ones that, that last. And to bring this back to Shakespeare, of course, what, the, the Henry V was the first bit of fiction, which I think is an yeah. important thing um, to remember. Was Shakespeare writing still um, for a politics outside the theatre then? Yes, he was, um, very, very much so. And he's also, Shakespeare is very interesting how politicians have subsequently used Shakespeare because one of the things which has gone missing from rhetoric in really in the 20th century uh, since the Second World War has been the ability to quote. Now, Shakespeare, Churchill studied that speech when he was doing his 1940 speeches because the odds that uh, Henry is describing there are five to one before the Battle of Agincourt. He's, he's complaining about the absence of troops 
and all the odds are stacked against him. This is exactly the position that Churchill finds himself in. So he studies that speech and he echoes it. And throughout all of Churchill's speeches, you've got echoes of Shakespeare. He knew long, large tracts of Shakespeare by heart. Now, could you do that now? Very few people do. Most contemporary political rhetoric is fairly flat and free of quotation. There was and an free echo. Free of the Bible. Free of, of the Bible. I mean, Martin Luther King, we're going to hear in a moment, is full. Uh, of the Bible. Um, we heard an echo of Yeats in the Tim Collins, the, the tread lightly for tread upon my dreams. But it's rare. I, I used to try and get, drop little bits of Larkin into Tony Blair's speeches. You know, they, they make a mess of you, your mum and dad, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but he always spotted them. He had an unerring ability to, to uh, notice poetry and then take it out. And was that because he felt it was what sort of too liberal elite or, or no, interrupt fe- the flow? Or? He felt it didn't carry. The thing that changes rhetoric, I think, in the 20th century is actually a rather good reason. I think it's that the 20th century has had such progress that it's harder to make great speeches. So when you're, when you're arguing to the propertied elite in the polis in Athens, everybody will be evenly educated. Mm. When you're arguing to a 60 million people democracy, or in your case, far, far more than that, you're having to be more demotic. You're having to have a plainer vocabulary because your audience is wider, is less evenly educated, and it inevitably alters the way you speak. Kurt, I'm going to ask you to take us on to your favourite speech of the night in some ways, isn't it? The JFK, uh, what's become known as the Moon Speech. Why did you pick this one? I love this speech. It's, it's not even John F. Kennedy's best speech. Uh, I'd put his inaugural address, I'd put his speech at American University above it, but it's, it's my favourite. You know, since we crawled out of caves, we've looked up at the moon, and then this young man came out on a late summer day in 1962 and said, it's time to go. And you know, for five years, just for context, there'd, there'd already been a beeping up in space from the Russians because Sputnik was up there and they'd sent a man up there. And so there was a little fear. He had a purpose to this, to frighten America enough into pursuing a space program so that the moon wouldn't be red someday. And he was pushing Congress too. You've got a bunch of different audiences in all these speeches. And yet he did it in the most hopeful, optimistic way. And just the audacity that we're going to build a space program from nothing and put a man on the moon in seven years is the type of thing we don't get anymore in our speeches. And it's a blast. (laughs) There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend 
to win. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked, why did he want to climb it? He said, because it's there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. And we did. And yeah. he wasn't there to see it as the ultimate tragedy, isn't it? Just yeah. There's not a shred of cynicism to the speech. I mean, we've, we've allowed ourselves to become so cynical because that way we don't get disappointed. If you expect that politicians and society are always going to let you down, then you'll never be let down when that happens. If you can allow yourself to be idealistic, the joy in being proven right is so much greater. And, of course, there's some propaganda involved in this speech. He knew the Russians were listening. That was part of it. But to convince us that we could do something that preposterous and, you know, people died on the way there, but we ultimately made it. It's something that's missing from our politics on the grand stage. How easy is it, Phil, for UK politicians to sound optimistic? <laughs> no, I don't mean now. I just mean it's, it's, it's very much part of the American character, yes. isn't it? And it's not part of that sort of slightly sardonic yes. British... Approach. Yeah. I always felt that if any of our politicians had said, yes, we can, there'd be a sort of, are you sure? <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, we, we, we probably can't, you know. Why yeah. not? <laughs> I've written quite a lot for American um, chief executives, and I've always felt there's a sort of spinal tap moment where I have to turn it up to 11. Um, because there just is, but it is a sense of optimism and possibility. Now, of course, that comes with being America rather than Britain. You know, it is you can risk the grand style when you're writing for the President of the United States. I mean, I am, I've been inundated by British politicians asking me to turn them into Barack Obama, and I just Go on, I, names. well, I always names. say to them, I always say to them, let me count the ways in which you're not Barack Obama, <laughs> because the principal one is nothing to do with them, it's to do with the, the context and the fact that you know, a black man as President of the United States is a remarkable story. It's a remarkable thing to have. And then someone with his capacity for language too. And that's just not true if what you're doing is the just-after-lunch spot at the local government chronicle. You know, you, you've got to be appropriate to your setting. You've got to be, in Cicero's word, decorous. And Kennedy, talking about going to the moon, how grand can you get? That's the most optimistic thing in the world. We're going to shoot to the moon. It's remarkable. We're going to come on in a moment to the optimism of uh, Martin Luther King, who 
perhaps even more remarkable. Um, before we do, I just want to say that we'll be taking questions. So you've got a few um, moments just to sort of put some thoughts together. And uh, after our next reading, um, we're going to have some roving mics and just catch my eye. Um, those with mics are going to catch my eye. Wave at me, um, you know, jump up and down, or whatever, if I'm not looking in the right place. And please do uh, bring your thoughts on any of the um, speeches that we've covered so far this evening. Um, Cody, I have a dream. It sort of doesn't need an introduction. It was a speech that changed the world, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there are two speeches that American school kids are required to memorize and perform, and it's Gettysburg and this. Um, what's remarkable about the, the passage you're about to hear is Dr. King didn't even know the day before exactly what he was going to say. He spent the afternoon arguing with his advisors about what the thrust of the speech, and then he finally told them to go away, and he was going to go confer with the Almighty. The, the, the passage you're about to hear, the most famous passage, uh, wasn't in the speech at all. He'd been, you know, ta talking about it over the course of the year. He'd been extemporaneously doing it. And until a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who performed that day, uh, shouted, tell him about the dream during his speech, he wasn't going to say this part. Jade. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. And Cody, tell us how that was received. I, you know, I, I don't know, actually. I, I, don't, I don't remember watching the crowd. I mean, you've got 200,000 people there, but I don't remember watching the crowd uh, as to how it was received. I mean, you can look at it today in a couple different ways, right? The White House, was, which is only a few blocks away, was viewing it warily. They were wary allies. 
the movement itself was splintered and uncertain. Even some of the speakers that day had different views of it. Some, some had a harsher take. Uh, some thought this was too optimistic and naive. And these are still the same arguments we're fighting through today. I mean, it's not like we've become a post-racial society in the United States. A lot of these words you can still use. So when he delivered that, was it seen that he was demanding the impossible? I mean, was what he said, did it, did it sound, you know, like the Emmeline Pankhurst speech, like a very natural thing to ask for, or did it sound ridiculous? It's more like the impossible. And he, he directly addressed that in the speech, talking about the fierce urgency of now that it's not the time to wait, that it's time to press forward. Yeah. He spends the first half of the speech, the, the, the bit which he did write, which is called a cancel check, which is just prior to that section, being very careful to say, to essentially to say to the audience, please don't riot, because Kennedy was very fearful of the, of the march on Washington. He felt he might put back the cause of civil rights if there was a terrible event there. And King is very careful to, to be very calm. And then as... Cody says, Mahalia Jackson screams out to him and he, and he turns. And in his memoir of, of the time, King's speechwriter, Clarence Jones, remarks the fact he turns to his colleague and he says, ah, oh, shit, he's doing the dream. Um, which is just about the biggest misjudgment in the history of speech, isn't it? Because he goes, that is it's just so, extraordinarily, I mean, how good is that? It's fabulous the whole way through. But they, so they had heard the dream. Had he performed the dream to, to smaller crowds? Endlessly. Or, he'd, he'd done it, the, the one he, that Mahalia Jackson had seen was in Detroit a few months earlier. And it was quite common um, in those days to do a thing on the, on the circuit quite often. So like Kennedy's asked not what your country can do for you. He'd said versions of that many times. Um, what King did was, as a preacher, he was very accustomed to having little bits of phrases and riffs and he put them together. It would be different every time and yet comprised of phrases which were common to him. He had a real stock of biblical phrases. But it's still amazing that he's doing it up there on the stage with no script, no autocue off the top of his head. No matter how well you know your material, to do that with such control and to land it in the way he did there is really quite astonishing. Just going to feel the temperature here in terms of the number of um, questions that we've got. If there's lots, we shall bring them in early. Just give me a sense of who. There are some hands coming up. Yes, there are lots of hands. All right, I think at this point then we will go to questions. You, sir, that's a very straight hand. Um, There's one up at the top. I'm looking for a woman. Right here. Good. Find me a woman. Lovely. (laughs) Why don't we start with you, madam? Cody, hi. Um, Question for you, please. It's very easy to forget that President Obama didn't grow up in a home where they might have even known who Mahalia Jackson was. So I'm wondering, did he come to have this extraordinary oratory style in the sort of vein of black Baptists a la Martin Luther King? Did he come to have that naturally? Because Presumably, he wouldn't have had exposure to that until, what, he was a man in his 20s when he moved to Chicago? Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's, you know, he, had a, he was raised by a single mom, white woman from Kansas. His white grandparents spent his childhood in Hawaii and Indonesia. Um, and I don't think he became well-versed in the black tradition until he joined Trinity Church in Chicago. Obviously, a church that gave him some troubles later on. But uh, once he did, he really did. I mean... He can tell you everything there is to know about the civil rights movement and its actors, and we would get drafts back with full inserts uh, from them. Um, Sir, I think you've got one. Thank you. Uh, Great event. Question for Cody again. In terms of speech 
givers or, or, or orators currently in the U.S. political system. Anybody coming through who impresses you? Ted I, Kennedy's uh, grandnephew, Joe Kennedy, perhaps? You did my answer, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I, was easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sensing a, a, a trend. I've been in, in Europe now for six days, and I've gotten that question six times. Um, so I get the sense people are looking for some new leadership out of my country. Uh, Let's move on to a few more. Yes, ma'am, you've got one. You touched on cynicism. For a speech to be truly great, does a person giving it need to genuinely believe in what they're saying? Or have you seen great speeches be faked? Mm, brilliant. Okay, interesting. Phil, I'll put that one on your side, but not yet. Um, yes, sir. I think all of the speeches that have been mentioned so far have been positive. Um, I wondered whether you'd be able to touch on when speeches have changed the world for the worse. Yeah. And um, whether communication and the oratory can actually convince people to do things that in their hearts or even in their minds they probably wouldn't want to. Really interesting. Thank you for that. Let's have one uh, down here. Yes. Thank you very much. You spoke of language and you spoke of moods and emotions. How much does the body play in, the, in speech? So, so full delivery, mm. how does that matter? We want anecdotes on that one, Phil. <laughs> um, Phil, do you want to look at the cynicism first? Yeah. I think you have to communicate a sense that you really believe it. An audience will understand. Well, they'll, they'll pick it out if they, if they feel that there's something inauthentic or something contrived about the event. Now, a speech is, by its nature, a contrived event because it's very rare for you to stand and speak uninterrupted for 20 minutes. But you have to project a sense of character and belief. There are many people who think that rhetoric started to go wrong when politicians cease to write their own speeches. I mean, Mary Beard is always making this point to me on radio programs. Uh, and I always point out to her that that gives me far more power than I really warrant. The, the speechwriter is just an aid to the projection of a character. But if the principal appears not to believe what they're saying, then that will be, that will be injurious to the speech and it will never work. So I think the short answer is yes, you do have to believe it. And just the second question, that is unfortunately sometimes very much to the detriment because an example, the, the obvious example, which is unavoidable in the history of rhetoric and its dark shadow is, is Hitler. There are others. Uh, Robespierre was a brilliant speaker who gave a fantastic but appalling uh, justification of terror, which he redefined as justice. There are many instances in the history of rhetoric where terrible words have been brilliantly argued. Cody, do you want to pick up on that. Yeah, I think both answers are right. I mean, people have very, we live in a time where people have very sophisticated bullshit detectors. We can tell when somebody's lying to us, when somebody's not authentic. The most recent example I can think of off the top of my head was President Trump's State of the Union address. Um, no, I'm not trying to make light of it. The, every, almost everything he said up until the end sounded like him. You know, you, you, you can vehemently disagree with the content. But at the end, there was an ending that sounded like it could have been written for any president who's ever lived. Something about holding hands, working together. And the entire graph, you knew he believed in none of it. He, he, did, he did that to an extent in the acceptance speech, you know, at, yep. at 2 o'clock in the morning, where, where everyone for that moment thought this was a very different man to the one they'd seen on the campaign. What was your sense about that then? No, was that a... Nonsense. I mean, you already saw the, the pivot coming, right? Is he pivoting to be a real 
president? And the answer is most definitely no. That pivot has never happened. In yeah, the that's an interesting thing because Trump was not capable of doing that convincingly, was he? And yet that is an absolute staple of the inaugural speech. I mean, all the way back to 1801, Jefferson delivers the inaugural after the most divisive election campaign in American history in which Jefferson accuses John Adams of being pro-English. John Adams accuses him of fathering a, a, a child with his slaves. It's horrible. And then Jefferson comes to do the speech and he binds the country and he does a version of no blue states or red states. And all American presidents do that. But there's something in the way they conduct themselves in office which means that's fine. And I agree with you. When Trump comes to do that, it suddenly think, no, that's really not fine. And he's very interesting in that respect because he's probably the first president of the United States not to respect the office. And as the audience, you feel that. Yeah, and if you do want more contemporary examples of speeches that could actually propel people in a negative direction, you, you look at his. I mean, there are no more racists and Islamophobes in America than there were two or ten years ago. But the Klan is now marching without hoods. And that's because they have permission from the President of the United States. It matters. Speeches matter. Gosh. Uh, that's quite a thought, isn't it? I can see now why you're a speechwriter. Uh, um, Let's talk about body. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, following on from that, Alec Baldwin would say, yes, the body is quite instrumental in conveying the character. Um, does it ever... Does body matter? Yes, it does. It does. I mean, I go back to my egregious example of Hitler, where the, the whole body was used in the, in, in the sort of rallying cry that he, that he uttered. Uh, a much more homely and much less dreadful example... You just think recently in, in Britain, Theresa May's conference speech where, she, where her body let her down. She was unable to get through the words because she couldn't get through without coughing. And it, she exacerbated that by looking down. Theresa May is just about the only senior politician who doesn't use autocue. She doesn't like it. So as a consequence, when she's on the podium, she's like this. And that puts all the pressure uh, on your throat. So when she started to struggle, she was unable to clear her throat. Most politicians will stand like that because the autocue is running in front of you there and it gives you a much better connection with your audience. So part of her problem was that. But her body was, was crucial in that, in that she couldn't get through the speech. Let's take a few more questions. That's, that's a very straight answer, yes. Uh, how easy is it to write a speech which you actually don't believe in it? And have you written one mm. of that sort, Mr. Collins? Great. Okay, come back to you on that one. <laughs> While he's thinking. Uh, who was my second mic? Yes. Uh, why do you think in terms of political speeches, how you say something is so much more important than the information you're transmitting? This, just explain that again. The, spe the speech itself is more important than the information you're transmitting. How do you say it? How, how, do you say it? how you say the speech. How, do you say, how you say it, yeah. And yes. Just down here, please. Today where we're now encompassed by social media and online type discussion and where the President of the United States no longer has to think about speech writing and making a speech and just can make a tweet in a few words, where do you think the future of speech and oratory in a more typed world? I wondered if we would get onto that. Yeah. Um, should we go backwards? Yeah, if you like. Yeah. Do you want to pick up on that one then? So we, we have a tweeting president now. Um, why would you bother with a speech when you can do it in... 140 or 280? I actually think that... I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. 
Uh, I mostly hate it because when I'm watching a speech that I've held to President Kraft, I have to watch live reaction to mm. it. And they're often reacting. Uh, people, would, people would grade the State of the Union address or any other speech before it was even halfway through or complain, you know, he hasn't talked about X issue yet. And I'm just yelling at my computer screen. That's like three paragraphs away. Um, but I, to answer your, your question, I think it's actually more important than ever because a speech is just... Barack Obama has always viewed speech writing as a way to organize his ideas and his thoughts on the page and put them forward and to lead a reasoned, rational debate, to lead people to an issue, to an idea, to a, to a cause. You can't do that in 280 characters. Uh, and certainly not when, you know, your greatest impetus is yourself. It's supposed to be, a speech is about to be two people about all of us, and tweets just don't get that through. I very much agree with that. It's a very important part of speech writing is that what you're doing is organizing your thoughts. And it's the process you put around it where you gather and you think, where are we now and what can we say? And how, how do we move forward? So the process you go through is as important as the, as the delivered uh, event. I think it's quite common that uh, how a speech is delivered ends up being more important than the content. The best example is David Cameron, who became president of this country for precisely that reason. President. President. Sorry. I'd be delighted that's what, Whatever he was. I'm, I'm trying to forget him. Um, in 2005, he went to the Conservative Party conference and him and David Davis had to do speeches in front of the assembled as a, almost as an audition for who would be the next leader. And Davis gave a very wooden speech. And Cameron did, if you remember, a virtually content-free speech, but he did it it seemed extemporary. He did it from memory, and he walked around the stage. And it was the first time you'd seen that. Well, actually, anyone who'd seen Gladstone and Disraeli had seen it, but it was new in modern terms. And the manner of his speaking said to the audience, I'm a new kind of leader, I can win for you. And that was a really potent message, and so I think it was an exact, exactly an example. And well, yeah, we're going to end on that last, that last thought. Uh, the gentleman who stood up um, at the beginning... What happens if somebody asks you to write a speech you just don't believe in? Do you say no, or do you manage to muster a way through it? No, I'd say no. I mean, you can, but it wouldn't be any fun, and it probably wouldn't be very inspired. If you're a political appointee, as we were, you don't end up writing those sorts of speeches. So civil servants do it all the time. It never really occurred to me that I had to do that. I've had one speech where it was a, a small a, a part of it, a significant part of it was something, a policy, ID cards that I didn't believe in. It was probably the best passage of sustained argument I ever wrote because I was so conscious of the contrary arguments that like a, a barrister that I know you once were, um, I was able to avoid the obvious pitfalls of the argument and I wrote very cleverly and well on something I didn't believe in. But, clearly, as a speechwriter, you have to have a certain humility. You're not the Prime Minister, you're not the President, you are there to serve them and to give them what they want. And if the gap between what you're being asked to do and what you think is so large, then you shouldn't be there in the first place. We're going to end with a very special speech. Phil, you're going to take us into this. I think it will have uh, an enormous resonance today, even though it was written at a very specific time? It was written at the turn of the millennium. In 1999, the Clintons invited a series of speakers to the White House to deliver the Millennium Lectures. 
And this is a speech called The Perils of Indifference. It's by uh, a man who won the Nobel Prize called uh, Elie Wiesel. Um, Camus once said the best thing that's ever been said about democracy. He said that democracy is valued mostly not for what it allows, but for what it prevents. And this is a speech about what happens when that regulation goes missing. This is uh, a speech by Elie Wiesel, who is, was a young man, as he says at the beginning of the speech, from the Carpathian Mountains, who wakes up one morning, and as he says at the beginning, not far from Goethe's beloved Weimar, in a place of eternal infamy called Buchenwald. When he first arrived there, he was separated from his mother and his sister by Dr. Joseph Mengele, with a wave of a band leader's baton, as Wiesel puts it, and with his father, he walked one way, and his mother and sister walked the other. He never saw them again. His father didn't quite make it through. He died from dysentery a few days before the Russians first burst through, and then the American soldiers liberated the camp. And in the speech, in the extract we're going to hear now, he's describing what he thinks of as the indifference that the world showed. What is indifference? A strange and unnatural state in which the lines blur between light and darkness, dusk and dawn, crime and punishment, cruelty and compassion, good and evil. What are its causes and inescapable consequences? Is it a philosophy? Is a philosophy of indifference conceivable? Can one possibly view indifference as a virtue? Is it necessary at times to practice it simply to keep one's sanity, live normally, enjoy a fine meal and a glass of wine as the world around us experiences harrowing upheavals? In a way, to be indifferent to suffering is what makes the human being inhuman. Indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger and hatred. Anger can at times be creative. One writes a great poem, a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because one is angry at the injustice that one witnesses. But indifference is never creative. Even hatred at times may elicit a response. You fight it, you denounce it, you disarm it. Indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. Indifference is not a beginning, it is an end. And therefore indifference is always the friend of the enemy, for it benefits the aggressor, never his victim whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. The political prisoner in his cell, the hungry children, the homeless refugees, not to respond to their plight, not to relieve their solitude by offering them a spark of hope, is to exile them from human memory. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. Indifference, then, is not only a sin, it is a punishment. 
And this is one of the most important lessons of this outgoing century's wide-ranging experiments in good and evil. Just to say, there is more to come. Phil is just going to um, give his thoughts at this pause. What he then goes on to do is to describe the feelings of indifference when the Americans failed to intervene and when everybody failed to intervene. And he asks the assembled people in the White House why it was the world stood aside. He then does go on, though, to say that there were people who came and in the end the American soldiers came and he thanks them for the rage that they showed when they came. And like many brilliant speeches, this is a symphony. It ends at the point where it began and it ends on a note of hope and throughout the speech Wiesel is saying it's the importance of naming people, giving people names. And he was prisoner A3777 to them but his name was Elie Wiesel. Does it mean we have learned from the past? Does it mean that society has changed? Has the human being become less indifferent and more human? Have we really learned from our experiences? Are we less insensitive to the plight of victims of ethnic cleansing and other forms of injustices in places near and far? Is today's justified intervention in Kosovo, led by you, Mr President, a lasting warning that never again will the deportation, the terrorisation of children and their parents be allowed anywhere in the world? Will it discourage other dictators in other lands to do the same? And what about the children? Oh, we see them on television, we read about them in the papers and we do so with a broken heart. Their fate is always the most tragic Inevitably. When adults wage war, children perish. We see their faces, their eyes. Do we hear their pleas? Do we feel their pain, their agony? Every minute one of them dies of disease, violence, famine. Some of them, so many of them, could be saved. And so, once again, I think of the young Jewish boy from the Carpathian Mountains. He has accompanied the old man I have become throughout these years of quest and struggle. And together, we walk towards the new millennium, carried by profound fear and extraordinary hope. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going to end. What a tremendous evening. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events and peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Hannah Kay and Eleanor Head. Editing was by executive producer Rowan Slaney, and I'm your host, Catherine Hughes.